Look, it's great to see you all. A uh, particular warm welcome if this is your first time here. We're in the middle of a, a, a series looking at Luke's gospel. And today we're coming into a new section, chapter 7 and chapter 8. And the great theme of these two chapters is that of salvation, which is very apt given it's Remembrance Sunday. Five times in these two chapters, uh, Luke deliberately uses the, the same Greek word for save, sozo. Um, it's sometimes translated in our English Bibles as heal or cure, so it's sometimes hard for us to see. But every time it comes up, it's the same Greek word, salvation. Now, it could be that there are some here, and you, know, you hear the word salvation, and we tend to think of that exclusively in a sort of religious context, a religious word, a little bit quaint, a little bit old-fashioned, perhaps not much relevance for us today. But whenever you and I are thinking about how do we make the world a better place, lots of people are thinking about that. How do, we, how do you and I become better people? How do we move on from the past? How do we look to the future? Whenever we're thinking like that, we're in the same category of thought, this category of salvation. I don't know if you've seen that Facebook has recently changed its parent company's name to Meta. Um, and, you know, I don't think that's just a cynical ploy by Mark Zuckerberg to deflect from the negative press, or a lot of negative press Facebook has been getting recently, but, but it's about his vision for the future, a meta-universe, where metaverse, where people can be transported from the mundane and ordinary into this world upon worlds where there doesn't seem to be any limits. I'm not sure if you've looked into it. You know, you can create your own avatar. You've got these virtual reality headsets, augmented reality. You can pretty much be who you want to be without some of the quirks and idiosyncrasies maybe you don't like about yourself. Get rid of them. Present yourself as you want to. You can travel wherever you want to go across worlds and across universe and you're not limited by COVID restrictions or financial restraints. 12-year-olds I read about selling NFTs for hundreds and thousands of pounds already, digital assets that could make you the talk of the town and more famous than, I don't know, The Rock or Prince William. And you can do it all in your headset from a basement in London. Now look, I don't know if that sounds appealing to you or not. Um, I don't know if you really understand. I'm just getting my head around it now. But give it five to ten years, it's coming. And one of the questions we're going to have to ask, certainly as Christians, is like, what happens when we you know, identify, or when people identify more with their virtual use than their real use? Like, who's going to save us from that? So this topic of salvation, it can't be more relevant for us today. And here, in Luke's Gospel, we're going to see Jesus' take on it. Three things we're going to see. The wonder, the nature of Jesus' salvation. Secondly, the rejection of Jesus' salvation. And then the outworking of Jesus. Jesus' salvation. First, in verses 1 to 17, or on page 1035, if you want to open your Bibles to follow along, let's take a look at the nature of Jesus' salvation. We are given two one very moving, very human, very powerful stories here. As Jesus saves a centurion servant and a widow's son from death itself. Just glance down to verse 2. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was ill and about to die. So this is not just about sickness or disease. This is about the fact that this man was about to die. He's on death's door. And if you glance down to the second story in verse 12, we read, As Jesus approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And so here we're seeing more hopelessness, more helplessness in Luke's Gospel here as people are facing death, are dead, and we see Jesus and we think to ourselves, what is he going to do? 
when Jesus comes face to face with death, how does he respond? And look at verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. He says, don't cry. He reaches out, he touches the beer, the cart that the corpse was on. He says to this dead person, get up. And what do we read? The dead man sat up, began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, we just need to like pause for a moment, I think, just to take in what Jesus Christ can do. It's very easy when you're reading the, the Gospels. You just, a miracle after miracle after miracle. They, and if you're not careful, they can just wash over you. Jesus can heal a leper. Yep, Jesus can heal a paralytic. Jesus can heal all sicknesses and disease. Yep, Jesus can raise someone from the dead. Hang on a second. Jesus can save someone from death. It doesn't matter how amazing this metaverse may one day be. At the end of the day, you're all going to have to log out of it and come back to physical reality, a physical you, which does age and decay and die. It doesn't matter how superhuman your virtual you is. We cannot escape death. I know we don't like talking about it, thinking about it, but my goodness, when we do and we contemplate it, the fear of the unknown, the fear of non-existence, the fear of eternal punishment, perhaps, do you see what Jesus can do? With just a word, get up. And with compassion, his heart went out to her. This is the nature of, this is the wonder of Jesus. It's a salvation from death. And it's a salvation available for everyone. Notice the way Luke ties these two episodes together in verse 11 with those words, soon afterwards. We have a man in the first story, a woman in the second, a centurion in the first a widow in the second, a Gentile, a Jew, one at the top of society, one at the bottom. It does not matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from, how you speak, how you were educated, what level of society you are in. Jesus Christ can save you from death, and he wants to. This is for everyone. Everyone who trusts in him. All we have to do is trust in his word. Did you notice what the Jewish elders say to Jesus in verse 4 when they're trying to get him to heal this centurion servant? Just glance down at verse 4. When they, the Jewish elders, came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. What are they doing? They are listing this man's good works. They are trying to prove his worth to Jesus. But did you see what the Roman centurion himself says when Jesus turns up on the scene in verse 6? Lord, don't trouble yourself. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion knows he is not worthy 
before Jesus Christ, the Son of God, perfect in every way. He doesn't even think about listing his good works as if that's going to help at all. He just brings himself. He brings his need. He trusts in the power of Jesus' word. Just say the word. So all you have to do, I know he will be healed. And Jesus marvels at his faith as a Gentile. Do you fear death? Do you fear non-existence? Do you fear what will happen to you when you die? Come to Jesus Christ. Trust in the power of his word to save. Keep trusting. You need never fear death again. Do you long for a better world, a better you, not a virtual salvation, which is never going to truly satisfy, but a flesh and blood salvation, resurrection bodies, this world renewed, and come to Jesus Christ. Trust in the power of his word. Don't try and prove your worth to him. Don't try and list your good works. Just come as you are, trusting in him. Well, if that's the nature of Jesus' salvation, let's move on secondly in verses 18 to 35 to the rejection of Jesus' salvation because not everyone in this passage comes to Jesus and not everyone trusts in his word. And Luke wants us to understand why. Not just back then, but so we can understand it today as well. Now, the key verse comes in verses 29 and 30. That's just over the page. In this little editor's note that Luke the author of the gospel gives us. You can see it there in brackets in verses 29 to 30. He wants to make sure we're absolutely clear on this. I know we've skipped over it, but basically in the verses just before, 18 to 23, Jesus has reassured John the Baptist that he really is the one who was to come. Look at the miracles. The blind see, the lame walk, just what Isaiah prophesied. Of course I'm the one to come. And then in verses 24 to 30, Jesus also reassures the crowd about John the Baptist. Yes, he was the one prophesied by Malachi, the messenger to come. I am definitely the one to come. Do you see all the evidence? My miracles, John the Baptist, all this prophecy being fulfilled. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they don't get it. They still don't believe in Jesus. And Luke wants us to see why. Let's read verses 29 and 30. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Now, what was the baptism of John? Does anyone remember who was here back in chapter 3? This was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the Pharisees and the teach the law refused it, refused to repent, refused to see that they too were sinners, just like we all are, and in desperate need of God's forgiveness. In other words, it's got nothing to do with a lack of evidence. Jesus is doing all these miracles, bringing people back from the dead. What more do you want? Fundamentally, they do not believe because of a refusal to repent. And that is why they keep on coming up with excuses, right? Verse 33, if John the Baptist comes neither eating or drinking, or the Son of Man, Jesus, comes eating and drinking, either way, they've got an excuse. Oh, John's a demon, Jesus is a glutton. A refusal to repent. 
Let me try and ground this in a personal illustration. When I was looking into Christian things at university, I found my, I was keeping on asking some of the Christian friends I'd found there, I kept on asking for more and more evidence. So they would like say things like, oh, Mark, well, look, have you looked into all the prophecies that Jesus you know, fulfilled? These were written hundreds of years before he came. Um, some of them included his birthplace. That's hard to fake. And there were 353, all of them perfectly fulfilled in Jesus' life. And I'd be like, yeah, but, you know, give me some more. And they'd say, okay, well, look, how about Jesus' resurrection from the dead? There's an empty tomb. There's hundreds of eyewitnesses. There's the transformation of the disciples from deserters to martyrs. What do you make of that? I'd be like, yeah, but... Give me, give me more. Okay, how about the historical reliability of the Bible? We've got tens of thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament. We've only got 10 from Caesar's Gaelic Wars. What about that 99.5% accuracy New Testament scholars tell us? What do you make of that? I'll be, yeah, but you know, give me a little bit more. Jesus, he's the center of history. He, 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 he split time in two, BC and AD. He's the head of the greatest religion in the world. He's the f- main figure of the most read book in the world. He's the name on everyone's lip, be it a swear word for those who don't believe in him. Or a person of praise for those who do. Now, what do you make of that? Now, by the way, I'm getting a bit dramatic here. It wasn't that dramatic. This was over a period of weeks and months. You get the point. I was asking for more and more evidence. They were giving more and more evidence. And after a while, I had to think to myself, hang on a sec. Is the problem here really a lack of evidence? Or is the problem with me? And this, like... Why this like natural resistance? Why this constant asking? Why is this stubborn refusal? And after a while, fortunately, the Lord showed me what was going on. And I had to see myself as a sinner in need of forgiveness and to come to Jesus Christ. It wasn't that I couldn't believe. It said I wouldn't. I refused. No matter the evidence put before me. So look, recognize what's going on in your heart. Don't be surprised when friends or family continue to reject Jesus' salvation despite all the conversations, books, church services they come along to. If there's no genuine openness to engage with the evidence, if there's no willingness to see who they really are, a willingness to repent, you could put Jesus Christ right in front of them and they wouldn't believe. They'd still refuse. They'd just come up with more and more excuses. which doesn't mean the evidence for Jesus is unimportant, far from it. Examining the evidence is vital for a genuine belief in him. But at the end of the day, following Jesus is about repenting, about coming to Jesus as you are, not trying to earn your approval, not trying to list your good works, not trying to show you're worthy. I'm sorry. Lord, please forgive me. That's the heart of it. But not everyone wants to do it. And that's why there's a rejection of Jesus back then and today. Well, look, that's the nature of salvation. That's the rejection of Jesus' salvation. Thirdly and finally, let's look at the outworking of Jesus' salvation. Because it's not just that Jesus saves from death and then Christians just twiddle their thumbs until they die. Jesus' salvation is incredibly, hugely transformative in the here and now. Christian people should be the most loving people of all. And we can see that in the contrast that Luke makes between the Pharisee, Simon, and the sinful woman in verses 36 to 50. Before we get into the details, I just want to make a sort of side point, but an important point, about how Jesus is often elevating women, particularly in Luke's gospel, 
um, as the moral examples to follow. I, I wonder if we all see that. In chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel says to uh, Zechariah and Mary that each of them are going to come parents separately, it is Zechariah, the man, who is struck dumb because of his unbelief. And it is Mary who is commended for her belief. You get to the end of the gospel, chapter 24, Jesus risen from the dead. Who are the first people who to believe, believe in him? Three women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary. What about the male apostles? They think it's nonsense. The women get it, the men don't. And what do we get here? Simon the Pharisee, a man. The, man, the ruling elite, the man with all the power. He is rebuked by Jesus because of his lack of love. And this woman, a sinful woman, possibly a prostitute, looked down upon about others. She is the one commended by Jesus because of her great love towards him. So let it never be said at this church and as far as St. James Clark world that in women are in any way denigrated. They should, let's honor, let's respect. I hope we do. And insofar as anyone here has a great love towards Jesus Christ, we are called to emulate them. Now that's all by way of side point. Important one, main point is end of verse 47. Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Why is Simon the Pharisee showing such little love towards Jesus? He doesn't give him any water to wipe his feet, doesn't greet him with a kiss, doesn't give him oil for his head. Why is he not showing love to Jesus? He is yet to repent. He is yet to see his need for God's forgiveness. He's still trying to prove his worth to God. He's still trying to climb up the ladder of good works. And when you're on a ladder and playing that sort of game, got to be good enough, you know, oh, am I not good enough? Am I not? Oh, you look down on those you think are worse than you. How does he describe the woman? In the verse that you're not a sinner, it's just ugly. This self-righteous disapproval, whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. On the flip side, whoever has been forgiven lots, loves lots. Which is why this woman can't stop washing Jesus' feet and pouring perfume over him and kissing his feet and weeping, which are probably tears of joy. She just can't get over what Jesus has done for her, what Jesus has come to earth to do to forgive sinners, to restore our relationship with God. She can't stop pouring out her love towards him. I remember a time when I was growing up, um, I went round to this friend's house, and the, his parents had just built this huge extension to the house. There were these beautiful uh, see-through windows from floor to ceiling. We were playing a game of football in the garden. We'd been told to play at the other end of the garden, away from the new extension. You know where this is going. We ignored them. It got a little bit competitive. I struck the ball as hard as I could. It was a terrible shot. It smashed straight through one of these huge pane glass windows. I can still hear the shattering noise as all the little blink, you know, came out. Just an empty shell. I was mortified. Right? I grew up in a home where if you spilt a glass of water, you're in trouble. So you can imagine how I was thinking now. I'm going to be like grounded for weeks. I'm not going to be pocket money for my, How am I going to pay this? It's a nightmare. You know, the woman, uh, the mother comes out and she, uh, she looks at the pane of glass and then she looks at me. Here we go. And um, she said, you know what, Mark? It's, it's okay. I'll deal with it. Don't worry, all is forgiven. And like, I, 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 
could not believe it. I hadn't even managed to get my apology out. She didn't even tell my parents about it. I mean, if she wanted me to, like, wash her feet, kiss her feet, well, I would have done anything. I was, oh, my goodness! Um, and what was really interesting was that, a few, like, later on that week, my younger sister, she completely trashed one of my prized Lego sets, which normally means I'd get very angry with her and have a good fight. Um, I did, I did still get a little bit angry with her, but there was no fight, and I, and I did actually find I was a little bit more gentle towards her, a little bit more tender-hearted, yeah, and I found myself being able to say, you know, it's okay, sis, you know, I'll deal with it, don't worry, all is forgiven. Have you ever experienced something of the transforming power of forgiveness? Have you ever, how much more so when it comes to God's forgiveness such as his holiness, such as his hatred of all evil and sin. Just one little sin of ours would ground us for eternity. And yet Jesus freely forgives them all. Your sins are forgiven. Past, present, future. You see what you, we deserve help. He guarantees us heaven. Your sins are forgiven, relationship with God restored for eternity and this transformative power and love at work in you. Such that you love God more and love others more. Can I ask them, are you more like Simon or are you more like this woman? Because whoever's been forgiven little loves little but whoever's been forgiven lots, loves lots. And Christians should be the most loving people of all, not because of any ability in and of ourselves, not because we're in any way better than anyone else, but purely because we have been forgiven all. And so if your heart is cold towards God right now, one thing that we can do is remember how much we have been forgiven. Today is Remembrance Sunday. We remember the millions of lives sacrificed so that we can enjoy the peace we do today. What a wonderful day for us to remember the greatest sacrifice of all that wins us peace with God for eternity. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And for those of us still climbing the ladder of good works, still trying to prove our worth to God, Jesus says, well, how's that working out for you? on that ladder looking up at others, oh my goodness, woe is me, I'm not as good as them. Looking down, <laughs> feeling proud, sinners. It's not a good look, is it? You don't need to be on the ladder. Jesus says, get off it. Come into my arms. It's okay. I've got this. Don't worry. All is forgiven. Let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, thanks so much for this next part of Luke's gospel, what you show us about the nature of Jesus' salvation. It's from death, it's for everyone, it's completely undeserved. We thank and praise you for it. Thank you for helping to understand why there's a rejection of it. 
that refusal to repent. Help us to recognize that in our own hearts, recognize our need and come to you. And thank you for this outworking of salvation, this transformative power at work in us. Please help us to see how much you have forgiven us and help us, therefore, to love you more and more and love others more and more this day, the rest of this day, and in the week ahead. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.